You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Sam Sanders. Sopan, hello. Hi, how are you? Sam, how are you, man? Pretty good, pretty good, considering, you know, surviving. <laughs> I bet. Uh, yeah, it's a very unsettling time. My guest today is Sopan Deb. He writes about sports and culture for the New York Times. And we actually met each other back in, like, 2015, 2016, when we both were on the campaign trail. Both recovering yeah. a Trump rally. That was 20 years ago. <laughs> right? Before our chat today, we talk about something a bit more personal. Since we last saw each other, Sopan wrote a memoir. It is called Missed Translations, Meeting the Immigrant Parents Who Raised Me. It's all about reconnecting with family, which is a thing that in this time of the Rona and self-quarantine, a lot of us are thinking about right now. Like, how do you deal with family when everyone's stuck in the same space together for days or weeks at a time? Or how do you deal with family when everyone's worlds apart? For Sopan's family, it was a bit of both. They weren't just distant physically, they were emotionally distant as well. The way he describes growing up, they were basically strangers living under the same roof. So in this chat, Sopan and I talk about how and why his family often didn't feel like family at all, and why he chose to travel to India to reconnect with his father, and what he learned about himself in that entire process. Okay, let's get to it. Here's my chat with Sopan Deb. So about the book, I read it the last few days. I am very worried about giving away spoilers here. So I want you to give our listeners a 30-second elevator pitch for it without giving away everything. Sure. Uh, So the book tracks a year of my life as I try to reconnect with my estranged parents. Uh, They were arranged to get married. They're both from India. They're both Bengali. And they had a really toxic arranged marriage. So we grew up in a really tough household. And I didn't know anything about my parents. We barely spoke growing up. Um, I didn't know their ages, their birthdays, how they met, how they came to this country, what they were like as children. And as a result, we grew up as distance acquaintances. Uh, and eventually, we didn't see each other for years. And um, at the time I started writing this book, I didn't even know where my parents were living, and I was barely in touch with them. It's really hard to overstate how distant you were from your parents. You already said it, but there is this graph on page seven of the book that just kind of stopped me in my tracks. You write, at some point in the latter half of the 20th century, Uh, They were arranged to be married. I could also say, though, without complete assurance that they both were from India, but I didn't know where in India they were from. I wasn't sure how old they are. I didn't know how many brothers and sisters they had. I was pretty sure their parents, my grandparents, were all dead. I had no idea what they were like as children or what they hoped their lives would be. I never asked. They never told me. Wow. And this is with people that you lived with growing up like just explain to our listeners how that can happen when y'all grew up for the most part in the same house so at a basic level right um we didn't really eat dinner together because frankly like we didn't like being around each other it was like living with a college roommate that you barely speak to which is ridiculous because they're your parents and they're your family um but we you know my parents barely spoke to each other or if they did speak to each other it was through shouting um, we just never got to know each other. My parents really didn't assimilate well to the United States. You know, and so part of it also is we grew up in a mostly white suburb called Howell, New Jersey, which is right by uh, Point Pleasant. Uh, it's near where the Jersey Shore was filmed, uh, if you remember the Jersey Shore. Oh, yes, um, I do. <laughs> <laughs> if you remember Not, the Jersey Shore. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> that, that's our generation. You know, I spend a lot of time, you know, kind of seeing my white friends. 
and they had solid, stable relationship with their families. Their dads are coaching them in baseball and basketball. They're able to talk to their moms about crushes, and and you'd go over to their homes for dinner, and you'd they'd all eat dinner together and talk about their days. I didn't have that, and it was kind of this false conflation of you know warmth and safety and skin color. But really, I would dread coming home because at home it was just kind of this empty, cold environment. And then the result of that is we never got to know each other, my parents and I. In a house like that, on any given day, like, how quiet was it? When you wake up, is everyone getting breakfast on their own? Does everyone go to school without saying, have a great day, I love you? When y'all get home, does everyone just sit in their own rooms? Do you eat dinner alone? Who has control of the TV? Like, I want a little more of the scene of this eerily quiet, disconnected South Asian home. Yeah, uh, it was quiet. My dad was out of the house right after eighth grade. Um, we mostly ate dinner separately. I ate dinner watching TV, mostly. I mean, I essentially did my own thing. You know, we all did our own thing. Both of my parents worked. Uh, my dad was an engineer. My mom worked at Drug Fair, which is a, a, like a Walgreens, Dwayne Reed, Walmart type thing. And then at night, you know, when they'd come home, I'd be in my room or I'd be in, a, in the basement playing computer games or... You know, I'd be out with my friends or whatever, but there was very, very little communication between us. Um, and just to underscore that point, um, my mother did not know what colleges I had applied to until acceptance letters started coming in. You know, I, and at the time, I wouldn't have had it any other way. Were there moments when the silence just built to a head and there were confrontations? And if so, what did those look and sound like? I imagine at some point the iciness and the, and the quietness would just blow up. Yeah, if there, yeah, there were there were blowups. If there was communication, they went to blowups very quickly. I mean, one of the things, you know, I feel is universal in this um, is that the, I think the generation before me and you uh, is, you know, they didn't know how to properly communicate emotions. Uh, my mom dealt with a lot of depression, uh, you know, when I was growing up and just never knew how to treat it properly. Well, the way that she would deal with it from what she wrote was just lock yourself in a room, her room, for a few months. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, so for most of eighth grade, I did not see my mother. Uh, she locked herself in a room, and she dealt with a lot of, um, you know, it was, it was clear that she just did not want to deal with the world at large. And something I've always wondered about my parents, and as I wrote this book, after I wrote this book, is I just wonder if maybe they could have been rescued if they sought counseling early on and just were able to get on the same page just a little bit. And I don't know. I don't know for sure, but I... But the thing is, my parents didn't even have the uh, language to speak like that. Yeah. So you have this upbringing, and then a few years ago you say, you know what, I think I will uh, try to fix this, and not just by talking to my parents, but like writing a book about it. When did you say this will be my path to resolving this? And did... Was there an idea of doing it differently without the grand gesture of an entire book? Um, so the first and foremost, when I decided to reconnect with them uh, for a simple reason, which is I didn't know their ages. I didn't know where they were living, but I know that they didn't have much time left on this planet. And frankly, it, it gnawed at me that I never had a proper relationship with my parents. And I was like, well, if you don't try now, they could die today. And you might not know that they've passed away and you will never have given this a chance. Uh. So the journey I wanted to take, I realized I wanted to document in some way. I told my parents right up front when I called them initially to, you know, I said, look, I'm going to write a book about this. 
All right, time for a break. Coming up, the moment in a Chinese food buffet that Sopan will never forget. BRB. This message comes from NPR sponsor StoryPoint Wines, maker of StoryPoint, a bold new wine brand with a rich, layered taste profile. Enjoy StoryPoint wine while you connect with those you love, either at home or at a virtual happy hour. Raise a glass and share a story. StoryPoint believes that the stories we share can bring joy even in trying times. Visit storypointvineyards.com slash minute to purchase. Shipping is included in your online order, so consider shipping a bottle to a friend, too. We live in a culture that prizes action. But now, former Surgeon General Vivek Murthy says it's important to make space to just be. Simply spending five minutes just listening to the birds chirping or to the conversation around you. Solitude and ways to overcome loneliness on the next Hidden Brain from NPR. I want to get to the central reasons why the home life for you was so strange growing up and so disconnected. Perhaps, if I can say this, the the biggest reason is your mother and your father probably never should have been married. Yes. Can you explain that? 100%. Look, okay. uh, my, par- my mom didn't want to marry my father. The reason they got married is because my father had immigrated to uh, the U.S. and was living in New Jersey. He was lonely. And so he did what many other Indian men of his generation did, is he put an ad in a newspaper. And then my grandmother on my mother's side, as I found out later, uh, responded to the ad on behalf of my mother without my mother knowing. So my father goes to Canada, mm. where my mother and my grandmother on my mother's side are, are living. And he knocks on the door, essentially, you know, and my mother is there and has no idea why, you know, her soon-to-be betrothed is there as well. And, and who are you? Well, essentially, my mother was never consulted on this marriage. Mm. And essentially, my grandmother mm. pressured her into marrying my father. It was a bad match from the start. She did not want to get married to him. And, and look, the thing about this is that divorce is very stigmatized among South Asian families. So they didn't get divorced because you don't get divorced. You don't even yeah. think like that. Yeah, yeah. You know, when I got to that part of the book where you unpacked that, I kept thinking, you know, we're in this moment where Americans are increasingly disillusioned with this Western model of quote-unquote love marriage. And to hear you or to read you talk about how this arranged marriage didn't work, it felt a bit out of line with a lot of the rhetoric I hear now in some corners of the country singing the praises of arranged marriages and quoting stats that say that they can often have better outcomes in love marriages. And like, in a way, just you writing your parents' story and how the arranged marriage didn't work it upends this positive, if unfair, trope about South Asians right now in that they're better at marriage. Yeah, and no I No one's also, better at marriage. Like, right. all marriages can suck. Right, and, and, and what makes, what is a good marriage? Is a marriage something that just simply stays together? Like, what is the mark of a good marriage? Like, my parents were, in theory, before they got divorced, they were married 30 years, technically, on a very technical level, under the stats we're talking about, they were a good marriage. They were together. They, have, they were raising two kids in the suburbs of New Jersey in a house, and, and uh, you know, b- both kids, you know, have done okay for themselves. So, on, on, on its face, that is a successful marriage. But that, that wasn't, it was never a successful marriage. I would also note that there are plenty of arranged marriages that 
have that love that we talked about and are perfectly fine. And so this story is not like the story of all South Asians. This is the experience of one particular South Asian story. Now, are there things that I think that are kind of universal? Yeah. For example, the lack of kind of the willingness to take on mental health treatment and communication about feelings. So that is something that is universal. But for the most part, you know, it's it's not a monolithic thing, if that makes sense. Yeah, totally. I want to so. I want you to set up one of the stories in the book that really stuck with me. You and your dad at a Chinese buffet um, having a really heartfelt moment in the aftermath of the Twin Towers falling. Sure. And I like this story because it really underscores this way that in spite of the dysfunction of the family, there still were these moments of intense connection. Yeah. um, So basically, uh, one morning, uh, I think I was in eighth grade or so, I was... It was shortly after 9-11. I remember uh, one of the kids, he, he was a little bit of a troubled kid. He made some joke to me about wearing a, a, a turban or something like that. Some, something very racist. And I was a skinny of toothpick of a kid. I went up to him, and to the shock of everybody in the room, all the students and whatnot, I punched him in the face. I just straight up punched him. You know, and I sucker punched him. It wasn't, it wasn't you know, something to be proud of. And so he, this kid runs out, he tells the teacher, and then you know, I get suspended rightfully so and so the vice principal calls up uh my dad to come pick me up from school you do not want to be a brown Mm -hmm. kid and being suspended from school you don't want that to happen so i'm in fear for my life here my god i get in the car and we don't drive home we're driving you know we're driving down a highway for a while and i'm silent he doesn't say anything and that's that's the worst fear, because you're yeah. like, where is this parent going to take... Like, that's happened to me before, and I'm like, oh, right. th- we're driving to a cliff, and they're throwing <laughs> me off. <laughs> right, oh right. I was like, well, this is a... It was a nice, you know, a nice 14-year life while I had it, you know? And so we're driving, <laughs> um, we're driving down the highway. He takes me to uh, my favorite restaurant, which was this place called the Freehold Grand Buffet. This giant, totally ridiculous Chinese buffet, but I used to love going there as a kid. My dad sits down and he says, he looks at me and he says, I understand why you hit your classmate, but you shouldn't have done that. You shouldn't have hit him. Violence is never the answer. And, you know, you should never do that. And I was ashamed that I, you know, I didn't say anything. I, and and we never had this kind of a conversation before. And that was, to this day, I think, my father's finest moment as a dad. Mm. Time for one more break. When we come back, what it meant for Sopan to get to know his Southeast Asian heritage and his parents as people. BRB. This message comes from NPR sponsor, BetterHelp, the online counseling service dedicated to connecting you with a licensed counselor to help you overcome whatever stands in the way of your happiness. Fill out a questionnaire and get matched with a professional tailored to your needs. And if you aren't satisfied with your counselor, you can request a new one at any time free of charge. Visit BetterHelp.com minute to get 10% off your first month. Get the help you deserve with BetterHelp. Hey, it's Guy Raz from NPR's How I Built This. And each week on the show during this unprecedented crisis, I'll be asking some of the top founders and builders how they're dealing with the economic impact of the coronavirus and hear about some of the ways they're pivoting to fight it. Subscribe or listen now to How I Built This. You say early on in the book that you were, quote, strangely comfortable writing material about being South Asian 
despite my thorny relationship with being South Asian. Um, explain what you mean there, and then tell me if writing this book made your relationship with being South Asian better or worse. Um, to your first question, so yeah, so I've been doing, part of what pushed me to write this book was being a stand-up comedian. So I've been doing stand-up comedy and other forms of comedy uh, in New York going back about eight years now. And when I first started doing stand-up, I, I, I tried to be like Jerry Seinfeld. And what's the deal with airline tickets? And then I started talking about being brown. Mm-hmm. In spite of the fact that for most mm-hmm. of my life, I've run from being brown. I felt like a fraud on stage. I felt like I was playing the part of a brown guy, even though all I wanted my whole life was to be white. And so uh, over time, you know, that's that's where I felt most comfortable on stage, even though it wasn't who I felt I really was. That's partially why I decided to write this book, because I wanted to find out who I really was. And frankly, like, you know, if you're telling brown jokes on stage, you know, maybe that's who you really are. You know, maybe your skin color mat- you know, matters to you a lot more than you realize. To your second question as to whether um, you know this made me feel more comfortable with my with being South Asian, yes, absolutely, because I know where I came from, I know like how I got here, mm. you know, and those are things that I think are really mm. important to your sense of identity. I feel very, much more connected than I ever felt in the past. Does that mean that I'm fully connected in the way some people are? No, not necessarily. You know, there, there are things that I, st- you know, I, I feel in some ways that the culture failed my parents in many ways. You know, that my parents wouldn't have lived the life they did if it wasn't for cultural expectations. But there are definitely parts of it I feel much more connected mm. to now. Mm. You lay out in the book that as soon as you start to really get to know them, your parents are hilarious. Like, they're characters your mother is a pop (laughs) culture maven who likes to type in all caps your dad is this eccentric art collector who commissions art to fact check historic paintings like is there a world in which this book doesn't work if your parents were less interesting also you got to explain the whole painting thing to our listeners it's so beyond yeah i mean it was as bizarre to me as as it is to you um my father takes me to his a flat in Kolkata where he was living, or Isla currently lives, I should say. Because and, you end up going to India to connect with him for the Right, book. so we, we fly to India to go, go yeah. see him. And um, he has a bunch of paintings on the wall. And my dad is so eager to explain that these paintings are, um, are, are historically accurate paintings. And among them is like <laughs> The Last Supper and all this. I'm like, what do you, what do you mean historically accurate? And... and my dad, you know, when he sees things that he finds to be outlandish, he wants them fixed. So in mm-hmm. the case of the Last Supper, I think that in the Da Vinci Last Supper, you know, all the apostles are wearing sandals or something. And in my dad's painting, you know, he, he commissioned an artist to get rid of the sandals because if Jesus washed their feet, you know, why would the apostles dirty them by wearing sandals or something like that? <laughs> you know, in, in, one, in one of the battle paintings, which I'm not remembering the name of right now, there's a, it depicts a famous battle. Like, he, like, put in more dead bodies, you know, <laughs> like, stuff like that. And it was just the most... I'm like, Dad, this is what you spent your money on? Like, really? Um, yeah, to your earlier question about like would this would this book have worked if my parents weren't such characters? I don't know. I think it depends on what the mm. conversations were like. Um, but certainly, my dad just being such a 
but, but both of them being such, you know, eccentric people certainly added to it. You know, from the first conversation my father and I had in the car when he picked us up from the uh, airport, you know, he's telling us, you know, that he's part of a cosmology club and he's doing, you know, he does yoga and he goes golfing and he plays tennis three times a week. And that was one of the most shocking things about this whole thing because I hadn't seen my father in 11 years. And what I expected to see was this frail, weak, you know, kind of close to death guy. But instead, what I saw was a man that was f- full of life and with more hair than I had. Yeah. Yeah. Was there a moment when you get to India and you see your father for the first time in years and he's living, kind of living his best life? Did you at all resent that? That the best version of himself that he could build for himself happened once the rest of y'all weren't there? And once he left Jersey to go to India to build that life? Uh, I would say there's slight resentment. Because look, at the end of the day, my father left the country. He left and didn't tell you, he didn't come back. He chose not to come back. Mm. And he wasn't there for a lot of my big moments in life. Graduating college and, you know, getting my job at the New York Times or, you know, whatever. You know, name the, name the you know, whatever. On the other hand... You know, once you find out in the course of reading the book of why he left, why he felt like he had to leave, this is part of the thing about looking inward and realizing what I contributed to the situation. And also, it's a question of empathy. And I'm empathetic to my father and why he decided to leave once I discovered why. And it was a combination of just he felt like he couldn't be here anymore. He felt like he was going to die. And he, he was overwhelmed with anxiety and depression and he was laid off from his job. And, and, and there are all these other reasons, but he felt like in order to keep living, in order to be whatever father he could be to me, he had to go back home. And home for him is not New Jersey. Home for him is India. And so um, there was a lingering bit of resentment, but I have since forgiven him. My brother told me after he read the manuscript he said this journey was not ultimately about you know, reconnecting with my brownness. The journey was ultimately about forgiveness. And that was a really profound thing that my brother said to me, and that has stuck with me more than anything. Ultimately, this journey was about forgiving my parents, and that's what, um, that's what I did. Mm. How has reconnecting with your parents and writing this book changed the way you think you'll approach raising your kids? Like, is there a way you thought about how you would be a dad before this book? And is that different after writing this book? You know what's funny, Sam? I actually have been thinking about that since I was 14. Okay. This has been a long-term discussion for myself because I've always known I've wanted a family on my own. And I also wonder, you know, I don't know this for sure. This is for the therapist. Uh, I I wonder if because I actually want to have kids more because of my parents, because I don't want to have what they had. Yeah. And you got to take the kids to India to see grandpa, right? Like that, that has to, I I kept thinking like the sequel to this book is you taking your kids to India to meet your dad. I hope so. You know, I, I, yes, absolutely. That, you know, if my father is, you know, God willing, still around when that happens and look, you know, Wesley and I are, are, are not close to having kids at this point. You know, we're supposed to get married next year and who knows if that happens with Corona and whatnot. But yeah, I would love for that to happen. And I hope that my father gets to meet uh, Sopan Jr. and Sopana. Don't tell Wesley. Sopana. <laughs> Sopana. Okay. <laughs> Thanks again to writer Sopan Deb. His book is called Missed Translations, Meeting the Immigrant Parents Who Raised Me. Okay, listeners, you know I ask for your help a lot. I'm asking for your help again. We are doing an episode of this show very, very soon, all about love during the Rona. 
We kind of want to call it Love in the Age of Coronavirus. I know, cliche corny, but we might just do it. Anywho, we need your help. We need your stories. Send us your voice memos and your videos and your whatever, your stories of love in the Rona. Are you looking for a new bay right now? Do you want advice on how to quarantine with your longtime partner? Did your boo's new addiction to gaming surface during this time? Are you just like about to go crazy on your partner? Anything, anything. Send us the drama. Send us the details. You could be on the show. I live for this tea. Spill it, okay? Share it all. Sam Sanders at NPR.org. Sam Sanders at NPR.org. And, of course, you can always tell me at any point throughout any week the best part of your week. Record that stuff. Videos welcome as well. Record it and send it to samsanders at npr.org. samsanders at npr.org. Basically, listeners, just give us the content. It's a two-way street. Communication, etc. I want to hear from y'all, okay? Till next time, thank you for listening. I'm Sam Sanders. Stay safe. Stay home. Be well. Be good to yourselves. We'll talk soon.